What do you think, Rue? Should we make a new podcast? <coughs> yeah, I think so too. Let's go. Welcome to this episode of the Colorado Energy Leaders Podcast. This is our second episode of 2021 and hot off the tails of uh, our discussion on climate change, I'm excited to bring you another energy leader from Colorado. For today, I'm interviewing Jeffrey Ackerman or Jeff Ackerman, the former chairman of the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. And actually, as you'll see in this episode, uh, Jeff has a really long history in Colorado energy, and I'm excited to be talking with him today. Jeff, welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Jordan. Great to be here. So, Jeff, um, you recently left the position at the Colorado Public Utilities Commission. And actually, before that, you were involved with the Colorado Energy Office. And you came from, even before that, the utility space. So I guess, tell us about yourself. Thanks. Yeah, it's uh, interesting to reflect back on the fact that I'm now coming up on about 40 years of professional experience. If there's a theme that runs through that 40 years, it's probably going back kind of a, a career path, a life journey that is always looking at sort of how to improve the relationship between humanity and the natural world. Uh, I mean, just to take it all the way back to junior high school, I wanted to be a U.S. park ranger when I was in junior high school, but I wanted to be the one who stood at the campfire and explained ecology to campers, things like that. I went from there to the Youth Conservation Corps one summer and then, you know, jumped into ecology and environmental programs, uh, classes in high school and college. And so, that's sort of the deep background. But in those 40 years, a lot of that has also started with uh, my first opportunity when I came to Colorado was working in areas where we're assisting folks with limited financial means engage with how they consume energy. So what is kind of generally known as weatherization or, or residential energy efficiency. Worked in that many times, worked my way up through the program from a, you know, a staff person up to running that program a couple of times. And then that gave me a foundation upon which I found myself working at the first time as staff at the Public Utilities Commission uh, as an advisor to the commissioners, helping them understand uh, in 2007, newly passed legislation requiring energy efficiency or what's known as demand side management. That took me inside the commission to then being the section chief uh, providing policy research on emerging policy issues for the commissioners. As I was doing that, someone nudged me and said, you should apply to run the energy office when the first person that Governor Hickenlooper had appointed to that uh, left that about a year and a half in. So that's how I found myself over there. And then while I was over there running the energy office for about four years and helping the governor and his key folks figure out who to appoint to the commission, they turned it on me and kind of all of a sudden said, we think we should appoint you. So that's how I ended up in uh, late 2016, having my name put forward as a uh, nominee and starting a term there in 2017 and my term just expiring last month. So Jeff, that is a great description, but you took us all the way to the end of your career. And before we get to that, <laughs> I want to start a little bit earlier. So you mentioned three things there, um, caring about ecology and improving the interface between humans and the natural world, helping people with limited uh, resources have better or wiser energy choices and, you know, shaping the energy mix. But I guess, uh, firstly, were you born and raised in Colorado or where did you, where did you uh, grow up at? No, my roots go back to the Detroit area and uh, started and was born and raised in Detroit suburbs and went to college in 
a small liberal arts school in southern Michigan. And then uh, it was 1981. In 1981, the auto industry, which is the heart of Michigan, was learning that other countries make automobiles better. And, uh, and they were suffering mightily. And so it was not a lot of job opportunities. So my new bride and I got in our 68 VW and slowly drove our way westward in search of work, kind of the uh, updated version of the Conestoga wagon. And we had to baby it about as much as a Conestoga wagon. And so we ended up in Colorado and just started looking for work. And I guess it sounds like with your uh, kind of looking for a job there, that might've been some of your first interaction with energy, or I guess, was that where you first became uh, involved in the energy field or related to energy work? Yeah, very much so. You know, when I came out of that liberal arts background, my passion was going to be land use planning. I wanted to work on what I thought was the better way to do land use planning on a regional or larger level. So I came out here and I'll never forget going to the Aurora planning office to see what kind of jobs they might have and found that I qualified to be an unpaid intern. And if I had a master's degree, they would consider hiring me. But uh, that connected me up, uh, which is what networking is all about, with a fellow who was lobbying the capital at the time on uh, environmental and policy and working for a number of groups from Trout Unlimited to uh, the precursor to environmental, Environment Colorado. And he took me under his wing and was doing some side work with the community action agencies. So that's how I first got into that world. Um, and we did do an episode on weatherization or rather on energy efficiency, but just so people hmm. are aware, uh, what is weatherization and why is that important or related to energy? Yeah, weatherization, the term that got uh, created, I think, in the late 70s by even the, pre, you know, in the Carter era, the precursor to the Department of Energy, was a realization uh, on the shadows and the downside of the Arab oil embargo, especially in the East Coast, Northeast, where fuel oil is a big heating fuel, that low-income households and payment income troubled households were going to really struggle because they tended to live in the least efficient homes. So it's a program that's evolved over the years and became very sophisticated. And we're proud of in Colorado as an energy audit based system where we would go in, run analysis, or we would have ways to now quickly, based on analysis, look at a home and decide where was the best place to make investments from uh, insulating attics and walls and underfloors to we did tune-ups on heating systems. You can make a furnace work more efficient just by changing when it turns on and when it turns off to at times ch changing out entire heating systems, uh, sealing up leaky uh, ducts, especially if they went outside of the envelope of the house, like in, in mobile homes and the like. So we did a lot of work and evolved that program over the years. Did some great training of semi-skilled folks to know those technologies, did most of it uh, with crew versus contractors and we, we became uh, in Colorado, it's kind of the lead in like mobile home or what they like to call manufactured housing efficiency, where you could take a mobile home, peel the, the wall back, stuff it with insulation, put the wall back together and do the same on the, the roof of that and make uh, mobile homes, which are, which are, often, are very frequently housing for lower income folks, very efficient relative to what they're currently living in. So. So that's, that's the nature of it. It's what the rest of us do on our own or sometimes with uh, rebates from the utility. So you handed it rebates from the utility and I really want to come back to that. But before we dive, you know, uh, I know we're excited to jump into your PUC time and, and whatnot there because I think these are heavily related, specifically because sure. weatherization involves selling less energy but saving the end user money. And so sometimes mm -hmm. getting utilities involved is... Uh, difficult from a purely economics perspective. Uh, but then, you know, after your time at the weatherization and working in this space, how did you make the jump over to the utility or when did you become involved on the utility or electricity side of, of energy? 
It's an interesting point. I had been in state government about 11 years and was kind of finding it was time to think about trying something else. I'd worked my way up through the low-income program during that time. And uh, opportunities arose uh, serendipitously because Public Service of Colorado was going through sort of a leadership change and a cultural change. Uh, Del Hawk was the president of the time. He was slowly handing it off to Wayne Brunetti, who had come in from Florida Power. And was, they were realizing that the future of this was the time when some states, including California and others, were exploring retail competition and whether or not that was coming into Colorado. So they were looking to change the culture by encouraging folks uh, to, you know, they were acknowledging folks are going to be retiring out. And that if you look at, if you peel back the cover on a, on a 1990s electric utility, you find a lot of white guys with engineering or accounting or financial degrees uh, doing classic engineering analysis to build an electric utility. Well, they realized the future needed a change of culture and bringing different folks in. And so I was brought in in that wave of folks in uh, 1995 with my liberal arts background and low-income background into marketing and product development and helped uh, think through and design an internal system of how does a utility that's always just delivered a service now think of itself as reading markets, understanding customers and designing value-added optional products for customers. And the one that I'm particularly proud of is was putting the team together to create the WinSource product, which is the was the the voluntary uh, premium price at that time way you could buy certain amounts of your electricity and have it kind of attributed to a particular wind facility up on the Colorado Wyoming border. I think innovation in the utility space has definitely been a rocky road, uh, but it's interesting to hear that, that the genesis was people realizing, oh wait, utilities do more than just you know one size fits all. They start to deploy services for different customers. Uh, I think a lot about time of use rates and how different customers might be interested in, in purchasing different priced electricity at different times. Um, but so from there, just so we kind of, you know, nicely wrap up your background, you then went on to the Colorado Energy Office as I believe the head. Um, and then following that, you went to the PUC. So tell us a bit more about that. Shortly before leaving public service, after having success with WinSource, I did something fairly unusual in one's career. I negotiated a six month leave of absence, actually. Uh, what we what they made sure we did not call a sabbatical because sabbatical implies you get paid. They were willing to allow me to access my uh, health insurance, but I took my family around the world for half a year is what we did. So we took my 11-year-old who was born in South Korea and our nine-year-old who was a birth child born here in Denver. And we traveled around the world with our long-term objective to land in South Korea. And we went there via Northern Europe and Southern Asia. So after I finished that and came back and spent a little more time at public service and they were going through a restructuring, uh, I was able to kind of position myself to uh, gain severance and then figure out what I wanted to do next. And that took me from there back into the low income world. And I worked for what is now called Energy Outreach Colorado, but at the time was called the Colorado Energy Assistance Foundation. Uh, I scored a scholarship to Regis for graduate school and nonprofit management while I was there through the Colorado Trust. And that took me uh, over to the Denver, uh, to the Daniels Fund, uh, which Bill Daniels started. I was one of the early staff there about a year or so after they had started and stayed there a short period of time trying out my new degree in nonprofit management. And then they had a bit of an interesting upheaval. And uh, one 
one day just jettisoned about 40% of us out of there as they decided to take another path and how they wanted to run the foundation. So that left me unemployed for a while, did a little contract work, and then found myself coming back into the weatherization program. Uh, the director, two directors after me uh, left when in the office uh, was now in Bill Owens's uh, governor's office. And so I was hired in to work there. Uh, and then from there, was kind of recruited by the people at the Public Utilities Commission to come over as that first demand side management or energy efficiency advisor. That's what brought me first time into the world of the PUC as a staff person. From the uh, energy office to the PUC and then back to the energy office as its director as part of Hickman Looper's cabinet. In my fourth year there, it was 2016, the current chair of the commission halfway through his second term uh, announced to the governor he did not desire to complete the term. He was going to finish after two years. And meanwhile, one of the other, the Republican seat, because they are uh, set by by a political party, was coming up. So they needed to find two people to appoint to those two vacancies. So I was helping the lieutenant governor and chief of staff feeding uh, suggestions to the governor of who to appoint. And as we were going through that process late in December and not kind of hitting anyone yet, uh, the lieutenant governor called me one day and said, you know, hi, Jeff, what you up to? He said, we just figured out who to appoint to be the chair. It's you. So that's how I ended up there is just by knowing just enough about the commission from being there and being a, a party to it over time. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a tough job. It's tough to find the right mix of people to take on those commission jobs, both from a temperament, expertise, where they are in their career, et cetera. I mean, no good deed goes unpunished. So <laughs> being available and there probably, uh, I don't know, helped, but instilled you in a, in a difficult position. But it sounds like you made it work, at least from what I can tell you from your track record. Yeah, I think that concludes kind of the, the history of where you've been. And now I want to dive into what I was hoping to talk to you about today, which might be a bit boring to you, but to some of us who haven't been in this space, you know, I think it's going to be pretty mm -hmm. interesting. And that is the relationship of these, what I would say, three entities. And I haven't found anyone I think that might be quite as qualified as you to discuss them in Colorado. And the three entities are uh, the Colorado Energy Office, or at least the executive branch mm -hmm. of, of the governorship and mm -hmm. energy, the utility and the Public Utilities Commission, because I view them as kind of three separate but orbiting entities. And I think in order to properly explain these and understand these, I kind of want to start with something that people take a little bit for granted, but I think needs a bit more discussion. And that is, what is a utility? Like, why do we have them and where do they come from? So I guess to you, Jeff, what is a utility? Sure. And actually, um, probably because I have a passion for kind of history and political science, it's that liberal arts background. I, I don't mind going back all the way to the kind of the raw component parts. And where I would start the conversation is that the United States uh, really as an economic system and uh, an associated economic philosophy is a very heavily and proudly kind of market-based free market approach to how we view things from economic policy. That's where you get, you know, our sort of uh, being enamored with Adam Smith's invisible hand and how the market just inherently is supposed to be an efficient way to allocate out scarce resources through supply and demand and, and the like. So that's our, our deep background. I contend, and I wrote my undergraduate kind of final paper on this from a land use point of view, that our constitution itself is basically a, a private property-based document. And it really is heavily anchored in protection of private property and that premise. So, so what I use that as a premise to then share with you the notion that at times within that system and that philosophy, 
we have to acknowledge constraints that the market is not perfect. It's never been perfect, but at times it get, it's imperfection gets to the point where there's too much dominance. That one entity or one sort of pinch point can overly control the market and control price. The, what's interesting to learn is that where this first emerges in American history uh, from a legal point of view is a, in a US Supreme Court case in the 1870s, where we first get this notion of an entity being affected with the public interest. That's the legal term. To be affected with the public interest, meaning that you have such control over the public good as you as an entity that we need to thus have some government oversight over you. In 1877, I think was the year, the entity was grain elevators. The grain elevators were a pinch point for farmers getting their product, their crop together to then distribute out either to get it to the mill or get it on a train or on whatever the, the mode of conveyance would be. And that that one entity had too much control over the market. So you start with that notion of being, uh, you know, meriting government involvement because something's affected with the public interest and is a pinch point. You see that shortly after start to be applied to railroads. The notion being, we don't need to have every railroad company build its own tracks. You, you have one set of tracks and then you're going to have one set of freight rail likely or, or very limited or a passenger rail. It probably was first a freight rail issue, I would imagine. So again, it was a financial or price constraining pinch point. So the government needed to get involved in railroad regulation somewhat begrudgingly. And this is the days of kind of the robber barons and the like. And there's a great Colorado history of slowly coming around to building the first railroad commission, but giving it no authority and no budget, which was sort of a say, yeah, we hear you. We're just not gonna really take it seriously. So it took a while in the late 1800s, early 1900s to now take that government intervention begrudgingly into a market, in this case, railroads. From there, it grows steadily to the next things that kind of become places where you don't want multiple gas pipes, for example, for street lighting or other emerging uses of gas. But so, but when you have one system, again, you have uh, monopoly circumstances, and then that grows to electricity as well. And so what you have is this notion that these entities from, from grain elevators to railroads, to gas, electricity, telecommunications, all had that common sense of being affected with the public interest and thus needing some government oversight. So to answer the question then, a utility is an entity that provides the public with a service. It's, it's, it's you, something the public utilizes. It's a, a utility, something we take advantage of. A regulated utility is an entity that is given sort of market dominance in exchange for government oversight. And that market dominance in exchange for government oversight is what folks in the business thus and in the history and academia call the regulatory compact. I'm not sure I've heard a better explanation of utility. And so I think, I don't know, you did great. <laughs> that, was a, that was an excellent explanation. And I do wanna just add like a couple things because I think this <laughs> is a really unique space. Particularly, um, you know, I uh, am, Actually, I'll just say, I, I consider myself a capitalist. I think capitalism does a lot of great things in a lot of different areas. However, as you point out, um, there are certain areas of the economy where we have essentially realized or come to the understanding that either non-economic values, such things like equal access to energy or you know, making sure that every American, I think a lot about the rural electrification program, where essentially we saw that as cities were getting access to electricity, but rural America was not, they were being left kind of in the economic dust. And as a matter of public good or value, we wanted to make sure that rural America could also have access to electricity, even mm -hmm. though taking electricity to them was very expensive. And so, 
all this is to say, there are sectors of our economy that we have decided that are so important either for equality or for economic access that we need to have some sort of different mechanism of delivering the good. Even though you purchase electricity, you still have it come from a kind of non-capitalist area of everyone should have access to certain types of energy for economic progress. And so I think it's really important to kind of almost put those glasses on and recognize that through this lens, there are certain types of industries where, as you mentioned, we trade kind of the pure capitalist effect effects in the name of some sort of non-economic value, but in exchange, we have some sort of regulatory oversight over those things. So we have an entity that is set up to deliver that service that we have decided is for the public good. They do it in a semi-non-capitalist fashion, but then they are regulated by a central authority, which in the case of the utilities would be the Public Utilities Commission. Right? Mm -hmm. the, the name kind of right. small. I guess I wanna let you respond to that, but I feel like that's kind of a, a thing to discuss is that like, there are sectors of our economy that we have decided uh, for some reason or another don't fully, aren't fully served by a purely capitalist or market-driven uh, approach. No, it, it's a good point. And terminology is important because capitalism is a term in the same way, you know, finishing up a long election cycle where you heard all about socialism versus uh, democratic socialism or social democrats. Capitalism yeah, can be a variety of things. And I'm glad at the end you mentioned distinction capitalism and sort of a market system because I think capitalism at its core is the essence of what, where's the capital come from? It's privately owned capital and thus private individuals have, are given opportunity to take their money and see if they can earn on it by you know, bringing something the public wants into that market system. So you have the market system and the capitalist system. I think those, because we still in an investor owned utility is still capital driven. And it still always have to be sensitive to that can it attract capital? Can it in, in the competitive world of markets where people are buying shares of stock, which is the way capital, one of the ways capital is created uh, or is made available to company owners. And, and you know, that, that's, uh, we, we still try in an investor in utility to make sure we're honoring that. Um, just to digress a minute as well, that the market system is fascinating too, because I, I've, I've kind of tinkered with this a lot, again, to that liberal arts background and, and, uh, is the notion that the market uh, is is seen uh, through the basic essence of supply and demand and microeconomic theory and practice is saying, what is the efficient utilization of a resource? So how much timber should come into the market for housing or whatever? Well, it finds demand for a certain amount of timber and people's willingness to go cut down trees and turn it into lumber and put it in the market. And what's the, what's the elasticity, what's the willingness? That it's very efficient in that regard and efficient compared to you know, the history of Soviet Russia trying to do that artificially. Where it, the overlay of what do we want as people, as a society though, is the market also decides that humans as employees are a commodity and an efficient market could decide 10% of us should never be employed. That could be wildly efficient, but may not be socially acceptable. So you have to find that balance point. And that's also, what we struggle with in a lot of our public policy of where do we possibly over rely on the market to answer a problem that really needs more intervention. So, you know, we, we're always intervening in different ways in markets. Tax code intervenes in markets. Regulation is the most overt and thus the, the poster child for um, government messing with markets is how it's often perceived. And that brings us to kind of the, the next layer up from the utility, which is the PUC 
where mm -hmm. we have the utility that is a designated entity that is meant to deliver a service, but then it is overseen by this entity called the PUC or Public Utilities Commission. So what is the Public Utilities Commission now that we've kind of talked about utilities? Right. Right, so the role of the PUC in kind of basic and oversimplified starts with thus seeing itself as a surrogate for market dynamics. And because if the market's first and strongest role is setting price, when you only have one, one entity, uh, then the market can't deliver price. So the prime function for the start of utility regulation through much of its history up until maybe as little as a few decades ago was primarily rate setting tariffs and the review of tariffs. And in the review of tariffs, pretty much a cost of service based conversation. How much does it cost? What's a reasonable, take a year and tell us for a historic or a future year, what do we think is a reasonable amount of cost you will incur from capital, return on capital, taxes you will pay to operating costs to uh, and, and profit. And then that we start with that. And then we figure out who's causing those costs. How much is from residential customers commercial, industrial, and then we figure out how to allocate those costs out to expected use by market. And that yields, oversimplifying, a rate. That's, that's the start of it. That's, that's where we got to the premise that the, the commission thus sits over that setting of how the utility is going to recover its cost and earn in exchange to that regulatory compact of making sure it's delivering safe and effective and, and reliable service in exchange for that reasonable opportunity to earn on its investment. So that's, that's the heart of it. Um, where, why I say in the last few decades it's changed is we've watched a steady pivot from our focus being on pretty much rates and it's still on rates, but now on uh, what type of investments in, especially in generation is the utility going to pursue. And not only to our earlier conversation about utilities begrudgingly being drawn into pursuing energy efficiency or demand side management, which is antithetical to their business model, but from the utility as the entity pursuing new resources to generate electricity to meet new load, we overlaid uh, a, a oversight function of pretty much watching them do good procurement. Did you get lease price? Did you do good bidding? Was it transparent? Did you make good choices? To then overlaying new criteria. How are you factoring in uh, emissions of the choices you're making back to all the criteria pollutants that the EPA has been regulating since the air um, the Clean Air Act and the like. And then from there, you get into how do we make the system more efficient, which is that notion both about energy efficiency, DSM, and, and beyond. What are ways to run the system better versus just a marginal cost-based system? And then from there, how to assist income-constrained customers as another criteria to put in that. And then much more recently, and, and where complexity really comes into this now, is how do you take a utility and say, yes, we need you to both own generation, buy new generation from third parties, allow customers to self-generate, allow communities to create you know, pockets of generation, allow people to consider their own storage and put all that together while accelerating the pursuit of decarbonization. So you overlay all of that now on what was a, you know, everything in, in the rear view mirror looks clean and elegant and simple, but it kind of seems like it was, it was simple in those earlier days. Those, those regulators had it easy kind of thing. But it's, it's that complexity of overlaying all those increasing public expectations upon what we want from our publicly chartered, chartered uh, electric utility and dash utilities. It's very clear that you have a real depth of knowledge here and you kind of explained a lot of things in there, but I will say it was, there's a lot in there. So 
almost like a, a little bit of a, a web. I want to untangle it for just a second. And so I want to simplify it down to like, let's take an sure. example. So let's pretend that I am an electrical utility and I need to install increased capacity. So, you know, for electricity, we use capacity in terms of watts, uh, a reasonable size is a gigawatt or a megawatt. So let's say I am a utility serving Colorado and I need to install 200 megawatts of additional, you know, capacity in order to serve growing demand. So we're simplifying it down to like, I need to build a 200 megawatt gas turbine or something. And, and for the sake of, you know, argument for a second, we'll pretend there's nothing else. So the utility XL Energy decides that based upon their electricity demand projections, they need to include 200 megawatts more of supply. And we'll say it's natural gas. Walk us through that a little bit. Yeah, no, it's great. Uh, a great question. Uh, I'm going to take you through a couple of premises uh, behind that. And what in Colorado we call electric resource planning, what generically is sometimes just referred to as integrated resource planning. So I may slip into ERP or IRP kind of language. It, in Colorado, by rule, we require the uh, regulated jurisdictional utilities, the two investor-owned utilities, and then now, and we'll get to later talking about tri-state, to file a electric resource plan. So the plan starts with just where you were at. It starts with the utility putting forth its first cut of what it thinks the plan uh, is a complete plan. It starts with a load forecast, just as you're saying, to that 200 megawatt number. They will put forth that and explain how they got to that number. And then because it will attract others who wish to intervene, either those who can intervene by right, by law, which is the staff of the commission, uh, the Office of Consumer Council, the, the Colorado Energy Office, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, they all have standing. They can intervene and say, now I wanna challenge some of this or other parties can petition to intervene. And that's how we get a lot of other good uh, voices in there as well. We will see intervention by a number of parties who bring a great amount of kind of skill and perspective. And thus we'll have a very rigorous debate over whether or not that is the right uh, target of future load uh, of that 200 megawatts we're using as a example here. Uh, one of the things, for example, that could be pushed back on is, have we factored in all the things we can do on the demand side that maybe if we did more aggressive work with customers, we could reduce it from 200 to 190 or 180. So we may not need all that, for example. So, and then once we have that in the process of, okay, that seems to be the amount we're targeting, 190 or 200 or whatever. Then on the supply side, the process in Colorado spends a, very intensive amount of period of time with parties, in effect, deciding the criteria that'll be applied to the procurement process when the utility at the end of this phase of resource planning goes out and solicits actual bids. So it goes out to the market and says, I'm looking for 190 megawatts of generation. And these are my criteria. And we're gonna overlay on that. Uh, do we have a preference for fossil free generation? Do we have a preference for um, generation with certain economic benefits, uh, certain community-cited benefits? Do we have uh, concern about it all being owned by the utility versus some owned by the, the third-party market because there are merchant uh, providers? And then, as we were talking about earlier, we, uh, we also have to overlay how are we going to factor in the emissions profile and, uh, and the economic impact and then cost as seen as a rate impact. So the full investment cost of X number of millions, if not billions of dollars uh, with an earnings amount allowed on it now over amortized over the life of that plant is an amount that every year the utility is thus authorized to recover, which has to then be spread out to everybody's rates. So ultimately what is the rate impact? And we're trying to balance impact on rates, impact on the economy, impact on the environment, impact on an uncertain future. 
So out of all that, the utility will get bids, come back, show us portfolios that mixes up those bids. And then we choose and finally put our thumb on one portfolio and say, that's the one we think best satisfies all of our concerns. Please go forth and start pursuing bids that match that portfolio, that plan. So we gave the example of a natural gas plant, and then you gave the example of the the PUC reviewing it. But just so we're clear on this, the reason that the PUC has any say at all over this is because the utility has a monopoly market that they provide electricity to. And if they are going to provide electricity, they have to make investments. And those investments are recouped by chopping up the cost among its captive ratepayers. That's kind of the monopoly aspect. So the PUC is kind of this step in here, as you mentioned, to essentially ask, well, is this actually justified? Because the utility with a captive market might actually try to justify something that makes its shareholders money, but isn't necessarily important or needed. And so, you know, the PUC could come in and look at the utilities and projections say, actually, the time that you need 200 megawatts more of electricity is during the day, and it might be cheaper to meet that with solar over the next 10 years. So have you looked at that and show us the numbers there? And is that the cheapest way? Because at the end of the day, those that investment goes back to the ratepayers, which is the public. So kind of the, the, the trifecta here is the, the utility serves the public, the utility has to then charge the public money to do that. The public then elects people who uh, then appoint people to the PUC and the PUC oversees the utility to make sure they're not taking advantage of this captive rate payer market. And so this brings me to really the heart of the conversation and why I think you're kind of really perfect to answer this. I want to talk about this from a very like narrow perspective, and that's the perspective of energy efficiency. Because I think universally energy efficiency is regarded as a very good thing, right? Like wise steward of our resources. And also it's affordable, right? We can, if we can, you know, do things to make our house, you know, use less energy than we as the customer pay less energy. But this comes to the heart of the question, in order to enact energy efficiency measures, the utility in the end sells less product. It, it makes less money. And so how do you as a PUC get the utility to do something that is good for the customer, but is actually kind of bad for their business model? It took me a while as a uh, still young manager of the low income energy efficiency program in the early 1990s, when we were first engaging public service, who was under pressure from the PUC at the time to do more for low income. And we kept having conversations about how to design a low income energy efficiency program. And so I learned a lot through that experience. And the first thing I learned is that and, and it, not to sound crass, but the savings to the customer for investing in energy efficiency are somewhat irrelevant to the conversation from the utility and even the regulator's point of view. What, because what I mean by that is what we are pursuing when we are pursuing investments in energy efficiency are system benefits. It's where we move out of our parochial sense of what's good for my house and say, what's good for the system of which I am a part. And so if the investment in efficiency can be targeted in such a way to certain end uses, uh, baseload uh, uses that to improve uh, efficiency of refrigeration or ways to move peak load because peak is the most uh, expensive to serve and moves if people can are flexible enough can move their usage to different times a day. Those have system benefit. And so you've tried to decide as a regulator with analysis from staff and, and smart folks, is that investment of a dollar in getting someone to not and consume it all or consume it at a different time of day, going to yield me more than $1 worth of system benefit over the life of that investment in that measure or that behavior. So that's the heart of, of uh, utility in pursuing energy efficiency, the regulator overseeing that, 
and the rubric that the regulator is using to decide is that good energy efficiency? Is, is it good for, uh, from a system point of view? Once we've seen it's good from a system point of view, we say thus go forth and spend millions on financial incentives to get people to do those targeted things. What we have to realize now is the utility, just to what you said and to what we talked about earlier in rate design and, and cost recovery, recovers its cost through the sale of the product. So if I'm reducing the sale of the product, the utility is reducing its potential to recover its costs. So you have to do two things there, you have at least two things. One is give the utility financial encouragement incentives to, to pursue it, pursue it earnestly, and uh, performance incentives to pursue it in ways that meet or exceed the goals we've set for how much we want, at what price do we want. So we have to do that. And then we also have to, over time as well, realize that the utility works with fixed and variable costs. You know, fixed costs are just things that incur just like you and I in our homes. There's things that we incur whether I do nothing in my home at all. There's just costs and there's costs on the system, whether we deliver one unit of, of service or not. And then variable costs are the variable of as we produce and deliver more, those costs go up. So in a theoretical sense, you would take fixed costs and fully load them in the fixed cost side of the price to the customer. But the fixed cost to probably be a customer is much more than the $15 I think you currently pay per month in your fixed cost. But we instead have the utility recover more through variable costs because A, we don't want uh, people of fixed, a very limited income to pay a large amount just to be a customer. So we keep that amount low. And B, we want customers to have less dis uh, disincentive to um, pursue efficiency. Because if it costs you a hundred bucks just to be a customer, it takes you a lot more inertia to figure out, well, I'm going to still pay a hundred bucks, whether I use 400 kilowatt hours or 500 kilowatt hours, that hundred bucks is still a hundred bucks. So, so uh, that's why there's always been incentive encouragement from advocates and commissions to recover more in variable costs. So you have to play with that. And that's where the world of decoupling comes in, where you can come up with new ways to design cost recovery that says to the utility, regardless of how much you sell in the future year, we will make sure you get this amount of money. So even if we have to, in the next year, push it over back on customers again and collect some more or continually change rates, we will make sure you get at least that amount of money. So that's the dynamic that's at place. Um, an example of this is the state of California. So California, for people who don't know, actually has higher per kilowatt hour per unit electricity costs than many other states. Not all states, because some states are in very remote locations that require you know, a lot of cost to deliver energy. But then the mainland states, California has more cost per unit of electricity. But the average electricity bill, so what people actually pay at the end of the day, is on par with the average utility bill in other states. And that is because they have this kind of really comprehensive way of incentivizing the customer to save energy and do things that are good for the system, but then also incentivizing the utility to offer that option. And I'm not holding California up as an example, but it's an extreme example of what you said, where the old business model was sell more kilowatt hours, bill more customers more kilowatt hours. And the new business model that I think we are kind of transforming to is out, or I call it alchemizing, kind of turning, you know, uh, metal into gold is trying to figure out a way to get the utility to offer the same service, but do it in a way that incentivizes things that are good for the, the customer. So I want to let you comment on that, but I also want to let you, you know, really explain that there is you have some really interesting and cool ideas on how the PUC could work with the utility or 
you know, evolve or change over time. What are some of your ideas or thoughts in this space? No, I think there's a lot of uh, interesting, but yeah, you're right, complex points. Uh, let's go back to decoupling for a moment and to California. Um, I think this is the world of where, and there's really smart people, especially in the, in the private sector, the non-regulated sector that understand the setting of price into a market and understand how to break a market into more and more discrete groups. You know, the notion in electric utilities of a residential customer group and a commercial group and an industrial group with a few subsets is not probably found in any other market at all. The folks who deliver you variations of uh, Apple products don't design the same product to every kind of household. You know, they, they understand who they're targeting and understand the variations and the features and the like, and then the price points that'll work. Apple may not be a great example because they feel like a monopoly sometimes too. But, but the point being is that I think uh, utilities uh, are through decoupling, realizing that we have to acknowledge that it's not right or wrong that the utility behaves the way it does. It, it's doing exactly what we asked it to do for a hundred plus years to deliver you know, safe, reliable, affordable electricity. Now we're saying, well, actually we want you to deliver it clean or, we, or less would be fine too. So if we do that, we have to rethink the fundamental principle of, uh, and in California's interesting example, because they also painfully went through breaking apart the generation part and the transmission part and the distribution part. And it allows you though, once, uh, once the pain has been incurred and the dust settles and the wounds heal, that you look at like the distribution system. And by that, I mean from the people's homes through their meter up to the system that supports us at the the smaller levels of service delivery, you know, out to the substations and the like. And that's the, the most dynamic part of the system right now and where the most clamoring is for people to want to put generation in the form of solar or the like on their roof or their backyard or, or go into self-storage or um, innovative companies coming into that space and aggregating load or, or you know, arguing versions of arbitrage as the price in the wholesale market changes. Those are the things we really want to encourage in the future. Back to our conversation about capitalism. How could you create a distribute, distributed grid that is a basically form where those exchanges happen, but happen in ways that still protect folks and but happen in ways that still put the right incentives out there. Decoupling thus is just the one opening form in a broad package to say, we need to still make sure utilities cover their costs reasonably, can still attract capital, but give them possibly other things to be encouraged to do versus just sell product, which is the historic entry level to any market, just go sell product. We want them to maybe be service providers. We want them to run really good, efficient grids, or you know, we need to have a public discourse about what we want the utility to be. And that's one of the things I was trying to say in my public utilities fortnightly article is we sit here in 2021 and every time now we talk about our goals for decarbonization, we always use 2030 as a benchmark now. And I think it's uh, worth saying, well, let's not move that benchmark, but let's realize we have a very small number of years to really kind of figure out, can we turn the corner on our impact as a society through the combustion of fossil fuels on the climate? And so now's the time to look at how we do that in earnest. And a couple of things I was trying to articulate. One is, the utility we interact with today, whether it's the ones we see here in Colorado or the versions you see in California or the versions you see in other parts of the, uh, the country or world, those are all gonna go through some pressure to change how they deliver, 
just to what we're talking about. They may be more service-driven and put their cost recovery on how well they deliver service. You may see them move into the ownership of things you've never seen owned before. There are models out there um, now branded, I believe called pay as you save, where the utility owns um, appliances in the customer's home or basically buys them and then recovers those appliance costs through a tariff unique to that home. So the utility starts to be concerned about end use uh, or in commercial property where the utility uh, delivers levels of light or levels of cool or levels of heat. And however they do it, they do it. The end user buys product of something other than units of gas or electricity. That's the future, well, some of the future, but all of that's in play right now. And what I was trying to say is we need to find a better forum to have that conversation of what is that utility look like in 2030? Because there's a, an inordinate amount of pressure on them to change. Just to be clear, there are two things we always allow on this podcast, throwing shade at California and throwing shade at Apple. <laughs> so you are allowed to do both in constant <laughs> amounts. Uh, I'm here for it. That was a really beautiful and nuanced point of view on this. And so I kind of want to let that be the end, but I do want to let you have the last word, but bring it a little bit just down to what I see in the utility space and, and invite you to, to comment, because I think it's interesting. On the one hand, utilities are designed from the ground up to not be you know, a market entity. They're designed to provide a public service while still making some sort of capital value. And so on the one hand, utilities are kind of in their own space where we want them to do things that are not necessarily always market driven, but now we are kind of layering back on some of these market-based things that have been around for decades in other sectors, but we're only thinking about how they could be brought into the utility space. And so I think it's really interesting because on some hands, we in the energy and utility space are a little bit behind. On the other hand, what you're discussing here is really novel thinking of how do we layer on more societal values on top of our utility and maybe not do it in a way that is so cumbersome that they fail, but allow them to be partners in this conversation such that they are incentivized to behave in a way that we want, which is kind of what utilities are, right? They're a public construct that right. uh, behave in a way that we like that serves the greater good, I guess. So you'll often hear in my comments when I, or when I've talked to classrooms or others that uh, it's important, I think, and I've tried this on some of my fellow commissioners, especially around the West is to whether we regulate from an apologetic sense of, excuse me for being in your life utility versus from a appropriately assertive sense that we have a common good. We have a common objective as a society of which you are a part and you were given this charter to play this role and, and given an opportunity to earn on your investments and to back to our conversation about capitalism. But at the same time, you are a unique entity here and we're not gonna just let you kind of follow the whims of what you think the market's asking for next but that there is so much public good or societal um, investment as well uh, in that soft sense of investment in how you perform, that we have to find that uh, space where all these things can coexist. And by these things, I mean that a utility can still first and foremost, you know, acknowledge and feel good about the fact that it has to um, attract shareholders and it has to give them dividends and it has to earn. And, and all of that, while at the same time, society wants it to do it cleaner and faster and better. And society writ large uh, and more, some end users more than others are thinking twice about their relationship and they, wanna, they want to redefine their relationship to the utility. And it's no longer 
thank you for delivering and tell me how much I owe. But what if I self-generated? What if I um, stored? Uh, what if I was able to store at different times a day as price changes throughout the day and then draw upon my battery versus upon you when I don't like your price? All those dynamics are in the future and we need to embrace those dynamics as well as build a better grid uh, where where we can do this stuff faster, cleaner, more elegant, where we can uh, not tell every human, hey, take pause a moment and unplug your refrigerator because the price of electricity just went up, but how to have a better refrigerator that does that for you and does that automatically. And that's just the small residential level. I think the real future is that commercial, that office space, that uh, those big box stores, those folks who use a lot of electricity and will drive this conversation of what kind of relationship they want to have with utilities going forward. We need to kind of encourage that dynamic, although it's going to be discomforting in a lot of ways, but we need to figure out how we do a better job of putting, holding that space for those dynamics to occur that allows the utility to still have a chance to exist and not feel that their future is in peril, but deal with existential issues at the same time about the climate and technology and economics and pure customer choice, which often gets wrapped into political movement. And how do you hold all that and see how to make the best of it um, year by year? Just for my audience's awareness, I did not get to half of the questions that I intended to ask you, Jeff, because you did such a good job answering them and were thorough and thoughtful. And yeah. I just, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Uh, but I think that is probably a good place to kind of wind down and bring this conversation to a close as you've been generous with your time and just generous with your thoughts. So I guess turning it to a more personal level, as we hinted at in the beginning, you just left a position with the PUC. So uh, where are you headed? Is it retirement time or what's the, what's the yeah. plan ahead? <laughs> yeah, I'm watching a lot of my colleagues who are slightly older than I uh, retire and trying to figure out the path to retirement. No, for me, um, still looking to do some interesting, uh, creative work, work with good teams of people, uh, take my experience and, and uh, put it where it can best be uh, applied. And so I've been uh, given the opportunity. We just released a, a press release about this, that I'll be joining the Center for the New Energy Economy, uh, Bill Ritter's organization at Colorado State starting next week, uh, starting on the uh, 15th of February at a halftime capacity. That allows me some space to try out a few other things part-time as well on a contract basis. There's a lot of creative things going on up there and I wanna give them all a try. So I'm a kid in the candy shop a little bit. I will say, I hope you don't retire anytime soon because just from this conversation, I can tell you've got some brilliant ideas bopping around up there of things that you could apply to and, and do and, and hopefully change for the better. So if people are interested in following you wherever you go, uh, where can we point to? Do you have a Twitter or I guess, where, where can people get in touch with you or follow you to, to keep track of your future work? Uh, thanks. Yeah, I, I don't do much with Twitter um, for reasons of wisdom. Uh, Best place is probably through the Center for the New Energy Economy uh, starting next week. Um, I think my information, contact information in form of an email and the like will be on their website through Colorado State. So uh, that'd probably be the best point of contact for me. Yeah, and I'm looking forward to uh, jumping in that space on that one topic you and I talked about on the regional transmission system or what's known as the WIRED initiative and figuring out how do the Western states through the Western Governors Association figure out a you know, better creative, lucrative, uh, beneficial sharing mechanisms for the entire, particularly Mountain West. It's gonna be exciting. 
Well, I wish you the best in your future endeavors and just want to say thank you again so much for coming on this podcast and having a really cool conversation with me. And with that, we're going to go ahead and wind down and bring this episode to a close. Thank you all for listening and all the feedback and responses I get through email or Twitter. And with that, have a wonderful day and stay safe out there, y'all. Thank you.